Welcome to The Kinked Wire, the interventional radiology podcast from SIR Publications. You can learn more on our website, sirweb.org slash kinkedwire. This episode provides audio abstracts of papers published in the July 2023 issue of SIR's Journal of Vascular and Interventional Radiology. You can find the full papers on jvir.org. My name is Ramel Noche, and I'm your host for this episode. Hello, my name is Jamie Lee, and I'm a fourth-year medical student at A.T. Still University School of Osteopathic Medicine, Arizona. I'll be reading the abstract titled, Short-Term Effects of Genicular Artery Embolization on Symptoms and Bone Marrow Abnormalities in Patients with Refractory Knee Osteoarthritis by Wayne and colleagues. Purpose, to evaluate the short-term outcomes of genicular artery embolization, or GAE, for knee osteoarthritis with and without bone marrow lesion, or BML, and or subchondral insufficiency fracture of the knee, or SIFK. Materials and Methods The single institution prospective observational pilot study analyzed 24 knees in 22 patients with mild to moderate knee osteoarthritis, including 8 knees without BML, 13 knees with BML, and 3 knees with both BML and SIFK. The area and volume of BMLs on magnetic resonance images were measured before and after GAE. Baseline and post-operative pain and physical function were assessed using the visual analog scale in Western Ontario and McMaster University's Osteoarthritis Index, or WOMAC. Results. GAE significantly reduced the BML area and volume three months after embolization in the knees with BML. GAE significantly decreased the visual analog scale scores at three and six months after embolization in patients without BML and those with BML. GAE also lowered the Womax scores three months after embolization in patients without and with BML. However, GAE did not significantly alter the BML area and volume, visual analog scale scores, and Womax scores in patients with BML and SIFK at three months after GAE. Conclusions. This observational pilot study suggested that GAE effectively reduces the BML area and volume and improves pain and physical function in patients with knee osteoarthritis, accompanied by BML, but is inefficacious in those with both BML and SIFK. Hello, my name is Mbir Sunlu, and I'm a second-year medical student at University of California, Riverside School of Medicine. I'll be reading the abstract titled, Real-World Safety Analysis of Paclitaxel Devices Used for Treatment of Peripheral Artery Disease by Danny and colleagues. Purpose, to investigate the real-world safety of paclitaxel or PTX-coded devices for treating lower extremity peripheral artery disease using a commercial claims database. Materials and methods, data from Fair Health, the largest commercial claims data warehouse in the United States, were used for this study. The study consisted of patients who underwent femoral popliteal revascularization procedures between January 1, 2015 and December 31, 2019, with PTX and non-PTX devices. The primary outcome was four-year survival following treatment. The secondary outcomes included two-year survival, two- and four-year freedom from amputation, and repeat revascularization. Propensity score matching was used to minimize confounding, and the Kaplan-Meier methods were used to estimate survival. Results. A total of 10,832 procedures were included in the analysis. 
including 4,962 involving PTX devices and 5,870 involving non-PTX devices. PTX devices were associated with a reduced hazard of death following treatment at two and four years. The risk of amputation was also lower following treatment with PTX devices than with non-PTX devices at two and four years. In addition, the odds of repeat revascularization were similar with PTX and non-PTX devices at two and four years. Conclusions. In the real-world commercial claims database, no short or long-term signal for increased mortality or amputations was observed following treatment with PTX devices. Hello, my name is Anna Hu, and I am a third-year medical student at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I will be reading the abstract titled, Median Arcuate Ligament Compression Associated with Flow-Related Visceral Aneurysms by Xiao and colleagues. Purpose to identify risk factors for rupture and outcomes of endovascular treatment of median arcuate ligament compression-related visceral artery aneurysms. Materials and Methods A retrospective review of patients who presented with median arcuate ligament compression-related visceral artery aneurysms was performed from 1999 to 2021. A total of 21 patients and 39 visceral artery aneurysms associated with median arcuate ligament compression were encountered, with a mean age of 59 years. Imaging studies were reviewed for the number, morphology and size, and recurrence of aneurysms. Statistical analysis was performed to identify risk factors for rupture. Results. 10 patients presented with acute rupture and 12 patients were symptomatic with nonspecific abdominal pain. 22 aneurysms were fusiform in morphology and 17 aneurysms were saccular in morphology. Of the 14 aneurysms that presented with acute hemorrhage, 12, or 86%, were fusiform in morphology with an odds ratio of 9 and p-value of less than 0.01. The mean aneurysm size was 1.3 cm and the mean rupture size was 0.6 cm. 31 aneurysms were treated by endovascular techniques, and technical success was achieved in all cases. 14 patients were found to have an arc of Bueller. No procedure-related adverse events occurred. No patient underwent surgical ligament release. The mean time of follow-up was 3.2 years, and no aneurysms recurred after endovascular treatment. Conclusions. Median arcuate ligament compression-related visceral artery aneurysms are an important clinical entity that should be treated even at small sizes, particularly if they are fusiform in morphology. Endovascular therapy is safe and feasible and results in durable aneurysm exclusion. Hello, my name is Emily Barr, and I am a fourth-year medical student at Burrell College of Osteopathic Medicine at New Mexico State University. I will be reading the abstract titled, Pregnancy Rate and Outcomes Following Uterine Artery Embolization for Uterine Arteriovenous Malformations, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis by Gennady and colleagues. Purpose, to systematically review published studies on the pregnancy rate and outcomes after uterine artery embolization for uterine arteriovenous malformations. Materials and methods. International medical databases were searched for all English language studies published between 2000 and 2022 on patients with uterine arteriovenous malformations who had undergone embolization and had a subsequent pregnancy. Data on the pregnancy rate, pregnancy complications, and physiologic status of newborns were extracted from the articles. 10 case series were included in the meta-analysis and 18 case reports on pregnancy following uterine artery embolization were reviewed. Results. 
In the case series, 44 pregnancies were reported in 189 patients. The pooled estimate of pregnancy rate was 23.3% with a 95% confidence interval of 17.3 to 29.3%. The pregnancy rate was higher in studies of women with a mean age of less than or equal to 30 years, 50.6% versus 22.2% with a p-value of less than 0.05. The pooled estimate of live birth rate was 88.6% with a 95% confidence interval of 78.6 to 98.7%. Conclusions. All published series report preservation of fertility and successful pregnancies after embolization of uterine arteriovenous malformations. The live birth rate in these series does not differ substantially from that of the general population. Hello, my name is Isabel Barbosa, and I'm a third-year medical student at Frank H. Schneider MD School of Medicine at Quinnipiac University. I will be reading the abstract titled, Resolution of Pain After Percutaneous Image-Guided Cryoablation of Extraperitoneal Endometriosis by Najdawi and colleagues. Purpose. To retrospectively evaluate the relief of pain after percutaneous image-guided cryoablation of symptomatic extraperitoneal endometriosis, or EE. Materials and methods. From 2017 to 2022, cryoablation of EE was performed at a single institution on a total of 47 lesions in 42 consecutive patients with a median age of 37 years, an interquartile range of 33 to 39.5 years. Patient and procedural characteristics were reviewed retrospectively. Tolerance and outcomes in terms of pain and patient satisfaction were evaluated. Results. The median follow-up duration was 13.5 months after cryoablation. The median pain-free survival rate was 93.8% at six months and 82.7% after 12 months. Pain decreased from a median of 8 out of 10 on the visual analog scale to 0 out of 10 at the last follow-up with a p-value of less than 0.0001. The median patient global impression of change score recorded at the last follow-up was 1 out of 7. The efficacy rate of cryoablation to avoid secondary surgery was 92.8% per patient, or 39 out of 42 patients, and 93.6% per nodule treated, or 44 out of 47 nodules. Four patients out of 42, or 9.5%, experienced an adverse event in the days following the procedure, and one patient, or 2%, experienced a severe adverse event. Conclusions. Percutaneous cryoablation is safe and effective in significantly reducing pain and obtaining local control of EE. Hello, my name is Priya Gupta, and I'm a PGY1 IR integrated resident at Henry Ford Hospital in Michigan. I will be reading the abstract titled Yttrium 90 Radiation Segmentectomy of Hepatocellular Carcinoma, a comparative study of the effectiveness, safety, and dosimetry of glass based versus resin based microspheres by Via Lobos and colleagues. Purpose to evaluate the differences in safety, effectiveness, and dosimetry between glass-based and resin-based ablative yttrium-90 or Y90 transarterial radioembolization, or TEAR, of hepatocellular carcinoma, or HCC. Materials and methods. Using the modified response evaluation criteria in solid tumors and common terminology criteria for adverse events, both tumor response and adverse events, were assessed at three months after Y90 tear. 
post-procedure Y90 Bremstrahlung single photon emission computed tomography, computed tomography voxel-based dosimetry analysis was used to create tumor dose, or TD, and normal tissue dose, or NTD, volume histograms, and to calculate tumor particle loading and specific activity. The TD and NTD receiver operating characteristic curve evaluated the dose threshold able to predict objective and complete tumor responses in addition to any grade and grade greater than or equal to three AE incidences. The chi-square test and student t-test were used to assess variable differences where appropriate. Results. Between 2019 and 2020, 81 patients with HCC with 20 in the resin-based cohort and 61 in the glass-based cohort, underwent ablative Y90 tear. The resin-based cohort had more males, lower tumor-to-normal ratio, higher tumor particle loading, lower specific activity, and lower mean TD than the glass-based cohort. No significant differences in baseline characteristics or post-treatment adverse events were noted. The overall objective and complete response rates were 85% and 65% respectively. The mean TD thresholds able to predict the objective and complete responses were 176 gray and 247 gray for resin-based radioembolization and 290 gray and 481 gray for glass-based radioembolization respectively. A maximum NTD of 999 gray predicted any grade AEs in glass-based ablative Y90 tear. Conclusions. Compared with glass-based ablative Y90 tear, resin-based ablative Y90 tear can offer comparable safety and effectiveness profiles for patients with HCC. The impact of the significantly different tumor particle loading, particle-specific activities, and delivered TDs on tumor response outcomes merits further investigation. We thank everyone who helped with this episode. My name is Ramel Noche, and I was your audio editor. The research from this episode appears in the July 2023 issue of JVIR, and you can visit jvir.org for the full papers, other audio content, and much more.